The I am is the place of peace in ourself. It is our being that lies both behind experience, but also permeates the content of experience. But we overlook it. We ignore it. We forget it. I am is, that is the place of peace in us. That's the place where happiness resides. Thanks to Issue for supporting Don't Keep Your Day Job. Create once and distribute everywhere. Everything is optimized to post on your website and social platforms. Get started with Issue today for free or sign up for a premium account and get 50% off at issue.com slash podcast and use promo code DREAMJOB. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode was life-changing for me. This conversation you're about to hear is nothing short of really transformation in everything that Rupert Spira is going to share with you. He has such a way of articulating the truth that it really moved me. And I'm just so grateful to be sharing this episode with you. Ah, Before we dive into it, I do want to let you know that this podcast, which has really opened up my world in ways I never knew possible is so important to me that I want to share with you how I created this podcast and what I've learned in doing more than 600 episodes in terms of having impact, in terms of monetizing the show through sponsors and all the different ways that you can make money sharing your voice and sharing your truth. So I am teaching a podcast course. I run it about once a year. No guarantees if I'm going to run it again next year because things are developing so incredibly fast, but I am running it again and it's a live, interactive, beautiful, intensive eight-week experience with calls and we'll be on Zoom and I will be walking you through step-by-step how to create a podcast, how to monetize a podcast. So the reason I'm bringing this up today is because we're running a pre-sale to that program. So if you sign up for that program by tomorrow night at midnight, you can get it for $500 less. You can go to kathyheller.com slash join and you can learn all about this program. But I am so happy to share with you that so many of the people who've taken this class have indeed started their podcast and seen so much gorgeous momentum as a result. I really think that it is so overdue for you to speak what you need to speak into the world. And I also think no matter what business you want to start, whether you have a product business, you have a service-based business, you have something that you teach, having a podcast is the single greatest way to build that business because a podcast builds intimacy. And through that intimacy, you develop a relationship. And when people get to know you and they get to trust you, they want to understand what else they can do to work with you. And so then if you do have products you sell or retreats that you run or a shop where they can go, they're excited about that. So if you want to get in on this, if you've been thinking about starting a podcast, this is a great place to go check it out. 
There's a regular gold level awesome package. And then there is also a platinum level package, which includes a ticket to my event at the end of October at Royce Hall, which is going to be so incredible. Andy Grammer is going to perform. Rachel Platten is going to perform. My friend Amy Purdy is going to be speaking there. Candace Nelson will be there. It's going to be two days of just the most incredible transmission of goodness. So whichever package you buy, you will get a savings. If you buy it by tomorrow at midnight, you can go to kathyheller.com slash join and go check it out. All right, let's get into today's episode because it's such a gift. Rupert Spira is here. He is an acclaimed author, a spiritual teacher, leader, podcast host, and he happens to be a trained potter as well. He has dedicated most of his life to finding the true nature of experience and how we can tap into the peace and happiness that already resides in our being. He's written amazing books like The Transparency of Things, The Art of Peace and Happiness, The Nature of Consciousness, Being Aware of Being Aware, A Meditation on I Am, Being Myself, and he has a new book that came out earlier this year. It's called You Are the Happiness You Seek, Uncovering the Awareness of Being, and it's a book you must have on your shelf. In this book, Rupert explores the essential truths that happiness is the very nature of our being and that we share our being with everyone and everything. It's going to open your eyes to the possibility that is continuously available within yourself, no matter what circumstances are. And it's honestly the greatest discovery in life to know that we are already that which we long for. This is just the most important work. So make sure that you get yourself a copy of his recent book. And if you want more of Rupert, you can subscribe to his YouTube channel and listen to the Rupert Spiro podcast where he explores the non-dual understanding with other deeply spiritual guests like Deepak Chopra and Rhonda Byrne. This is one of those conversations I will never forget. Every time he speaks, I feel my heart open. I feel my brain shifting. His words are seriously pure oxygen. And not only is he incredibly knowledgeable, he's one of the kindest people I have ever met. You're going to love him so much. I hope you're ready to learn a few things in the next hour. Without further ado, please welcome the brilliant Rupert Spira. Rupert, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. Not at all, Kathy. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And you know, I say thank you for being here and you're really here here. And it's already right before we hit record, I told you this, like I can just feel how much Wi-Fi signal your presence gives to the world. So thank you for doing all of your seeking so that you could emit that. So let's talk about that. Your, your path of the spiritual, your path of this, the seeker. When did that begin? And when did you start to feel like you got some clarity around things? Well, it began in my uh, mid-teens. I first came across the poetry of the Sufi mystic Jalaluddin Rumi, and I was very touched by that, although I didn't really understand it, but it touched a chord in my heart. I, I kind of knew what he was saying was true, even though I didn't understand it. So that really a, a, a awakened a, um, a quest, a search in me. I went from there to the classical Advaita Vedanta tradition, the non-dual tradition of India, in which I first learned to meditate and then began to explore the nature of my own being, the nature of reality, who or what I, I really am, what the world really is, what my relationship with the world is, and, and so on. And this really initiated a, a quest that lasted for many, many years. And after about uh, 20 years or so, I, I was introduced to the 
tantric teaching of Kashmir Shaivism. So I, I, my, my search took me on a sort of tour of many of the great uh, religious and spiritual traditions and, and really ended up back home where I started with myself, my being. So it was a, a great adventure I took. And the adventure took me back to myself, but to myself in a, in a new way. It, it took me to recognizing the nature of my being. And I, it was necessary for me to go on that great journey because when I started, uh, it wasn't clear to me who or what I essentially am. And above all, uh, the peace and the happiness uh, for which I longed above all else was not available to me or was at least available to me just in small uh, small doses. But I didn't want just small doses of peace and happiness in between the turmoil and the struggle and the difficulties of life. I, I, I don't want to be happy just a little bit of the time or at peace a little bit of the time. I wanted to be at peace all the time. So it, as I say, it took me on this great journey and it eventually brought me back to myself, to this recognition that the nature of myself or the nature of my being is peace itself. But I had to go on a great adventure. I had to leave home, travel around the world, only to return home again and find that what I'd been seeking was there at home all the time. It's so beautiful. Listening to you is like listening to music, really beautiful music. And we're going to talk about your newest book, You Are the Happiness You Seek. And in going there, what you just said reminds me of, I was watching a documentary on Ram Dass, Becoming Nobody. Maybe you saw it. That's a great title, Becoming Nobody. And he says in the beginning, I would try all of these things and then at some point I would come down and then I didn't want to come down anymore. I wanted to just stay up. So he went on his own journey, which I don't know that much about, but I thought that was beautiful. And then he went on his journey. And what I took from that is my own journey, right? Studying the work of John Kabat-Zinn. And I lived in Jerusalem for three years and studied Kabbalah. And I studied for two and a half years at the Mindfulness Center at UCLA. And I've done week-long silent retreats. And I've done this and I've done that. Yes. And I said to my Kabbalistic rabbi yesterday on a Zoom call, but why is there still this empty hole inside of me? And I know the consciousness of reality that I'm part of it. I know logically, like I, I've gotten to that place where I do see reality through the lens of the infinite. And I wear this and I... I know that as Deepak Chopra said, when he came on here, we are, he said, people don't know who we are. We are the divine pretending to be a person, right? Like I've heard it to the point where I know it's the truth and I say it. And yet sort of like what you were describing, I find that there's many moments in my day where there's like a homesick feeling in my stomach. And I know that if I'm feeling that after being, willing to dedicate so much time to seeking this closeness with the universe that so many people who listen to my show and so many people in the world feel that homesick feeling in their stomach. So you just described wanting to not feel that in your own words. The way you describe it, Kathy, you, you, you describe it as homesickness. Now, when we're homesick, when we leave home as a child, 
We're sick for the home that we remember, that we know. We're not sick because we want something new, something that we haven't yet experienced. We're, we're homesick. We're homesick for something that we already know, a place to which we've already been, but we just can't find our way back there. And it's interesting that you, you, you don't say, I felt sick. You said, I feel homesick. In other words, I, I've experienced in myself what it is that I am seeking. I've just lost my way back to it. I want to go home. I want to go back. And wh what is that place? It is not a mysterious part of ourself or place in ourself that is difficult to access or that something that only one in a million people recognize or have access to. It, it's just our being. It's just our being, and our being just lies just behind the content of our experience. When we say, for instance, I am upset, the words I am refer to our being, and the word upset refers to our feeling. So normally when we say, I am upset, we lose ourselves in the upset, in the feeling. And we ignore or overlook our being, the I am. Or when we say, I am lonely, we ignore the I am and we get lost in the loneliness. When we say, I am tired, the tiredness takes over our entire field of attention and we ignore the I am. But the I am, that is our being, is shining in all experience. Right now we feel, I am having a conversation. All our attention goes to the conversation, but not to the I am. The I am is present. Even when we say, I am deeply depressed, we lose ourselves in the depression. We overlook the I am. The I am is the place of peace in ourself. It is our being that lies both behind experience, but also permeates the content of experience. But we overlook it. We ignore it. We forget it. I am is, that is the place of peace in us. That's the place where happiness resides. As you speak these words, my whole nervous system like calms exactly. down. Exactly. And I just have to add just for anecdotal uh, conversation that when I was home as a child, I wanted to go home because my home was not it was not a place of peace, right? So when I say homesick, you knew what I yes. meant. Yes, when you say home, that homesickness, the, the, the place that you know, if everyone didn't know the taste of peace or happiness, we wouldn't know what to desire. When we desire happiness, we are not desiring something that we don't know. It's not like desiring to go to China if we've never been to China before. <laughs> no, it, when we desire happiness, we something... We desire something that we know very well. We've been there before. We've just lost touch with it, and we can't find our way back to it. So when you say, I'm, I'm homesickness, you're right. It's not a physical location home. You're, you're saying, I know the place of peace in the depths of my heart, in my being. I just lost my way back. I can't find my way back there because my experience is so tumultuous and demanding, and, and I just can't find my way back to the home in my heart, which is the place of peace. It makes me cry because as you say it, what's coming up for me is 
I feel I've been such a pleaser my whole life. And so many people that I know want belonging so badly that I just put together that maybe that I am the, who I really am longs to just be as opposed to being what my ego thinks everybody needs me to be, right? Well, yes, exactly. When we're seeking respect or, or love or recognition from other people, what we're really seeking in them is what we can't find in ourselves. So we're projecting it onto the other person. We're demanding that the other person give us satisfaction, give us recognition, give us peace. And the only reason we demand it in the other is because we've lost touch with it in ourself. And when, you, when you're in touch with it in yourself, you no longer need the other's adulation, respect, or, or even their love. This doesn't mean to say that we don't have loving friendships or respectful relationships, but we no longer need the other to provide that for us because we found the source of that in ourself. And in fact, this has a profound effect on our relationships, be they intimate relationships, uh, friends, colleagues, because we withdraw from the other person the demand or the expectation that they make us happy or that they produce love for us. And in doing so, we remove, we withdraw an impossible burden from our friend. Our friends can never produce peace or happiness or love for us. And But if we expect them to do so, we are setting them up for failure. And sooner or later, we will feel that that person lets us down. No, they haven't let us down. We just projected an impossible demand onto them in the first place. We expected to find in them what we really want to find in ourselves, but have lost access to. It's magnificent. And this idea that I just want to comment on, you said before, is like such an earth shattering idea for me, which is you miss the thing that you, you know, that's, that's like such a huge paradigm exactly. shift. Exactly. What I also want to say about what you, you were just sharing is for me, when I am in that pleaser mode, it comes from this survival of like, I want to make sure everybody is happy. So I'm safe. And I feel as though so many women who I meet who listen to this show, I've talked to hundreds of thousands of women, they don't know how to receive from other people. It's almost like we just want to be depleted. And it's, it's so interesting. It robs other people of actually feeling a little bit of this intimacy because there's a sense of unworthiness around receiving like women will say, Oh no, 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 no. You don't have to get me that. Oh no, no. I, you look so pretty. Yeah. Oh no, 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 no. As if it's humility because who am I to receive it? I'm so unworthy of receiving. So I have that issue where I'm like, no, no, you don't even have to give me a compliment. You don't have to pay for dinner. You don't have to do any of that. Like, and that must be some hyper vigilant survival skill around not receiving because maybe love receiving love didn't feel safe or whatever it was. But now I see yeah. women walking around so with such heaviness and so depleted. And it seems as though it's coming from humility and a sense of unworthiness. But that doesn't make sense because if it doesn't feel good, something must not be right. 
Yes, yes. As you say, it's not it's not real humility. It's a, a kind of collapsed sense of one's self. Right. A feeling right. of being um, unworthy, unlovable. Uh, and it's because we don't take our stand in our being. Our, our identity is invested, by which I mean it, it's built out of our image of ourself and other people's image of us. So we, we, we worry about what other people think of us, how we present ourselves to others. So our, our relationships, and of course, if the other person is doing this as well, the relationship is a relationship between two images or two sets of belief, two people's beliefs about themselves, about the type of person they are, the type of person they should be, how they look, how successful they are. Whereas real friendship is the relationship between two beings. It's the sharing of being. It has nothing to do with how we look or how successful we are or how wealthy we are or how healthy we are. It, it's right. All those um, characteristics are the means by which we share friendship or express friendship. But the friendship itself is to do with the sharing of our being. And it has nothing to do with the, what we look like, how wealthy or healthy. or It's nothing to do with that. But because we've lost touch with our being, our sense of ourselves is derived from the way we look, how smart we are, how wealthy we are, how this we are, how that we are. That That's not really who we are. That Those are just our are attributes. They're not essential to us. They're not what we really are. But when we lose touch with who we really are, we, we rely on these qualities. And, and our, our friendships, as a result, they become superficial, fragile, prone to misunderstanding, to hurt, to resentment, to judgment, etc. But we all know but real friendship. We all know what it's like to be with someone where you feel that the friendship is just heart to heart, being to being. It's got nothing to do with how you look, what work you do, how successful you are. It's just the sharing of being. That's what love is, the recognition of our shared being. It's it's like so mind-blowing to me. And I don't usually tear up this much, but your light is so beautiful. And it's just the way you hand over this, these jewels, I feel like, you know, and I get to be an ambassador on behalf of the people listening who are not sitting here asking questions. So I feel our collective confusion or pain or whatever it is. And what you just said is so giant because I can remember on my second date with my husband, I was telling him the story and I was all dressed up. And at one point he said, you know, you, you're a really good storyteller, but if you didn't have any stories to tell and you just sat there, I would still really enjoy this time. You don't have to tell me an interesting That's beautiful. Story. That's and beautiful. I was like, it is. And it's like, I, I, my whole relationship, it's like, here I am. And so many people, you know, this, you've probably seen this in the world. We want to achieve things, right? We want to have accolades. And so I've like worked, you know, I have three kids and I've made all of these milestones and I became the breadwinner and I make all this money. And it's like, and then inside my house, just to sit on the couch, right. And to let him sit next to me, what you just said is like, 
that's it. That's where the relationship is just in the being, like not in yeah, exactly taking everyone on a vacation. Like, yes, Rupert, you must look at the world and say, everyone's so busy, <laughs> like running from just being, which is so much easier if you could just sit down. I think that everybody loves happiness above all else. So the search for happiness uh, motivates most people's actions most of the time. And in our culture, we've lost touch with the understanding that happiness is the nature of our being. It, it's what we are. It's the nature of ourself. It's not something that needs to be produced for us by having a particular object, a substance, an activity, a relationship, and, and so on. It, it is the nature of our being. So let's talk about your latest book, which came out a little while ago. You are the happiness you seek, which is really what you're saying. That's what you it. just said, Rupert, and I've had everyone on this show from Marion Williamson to Deepak. I mean, all that, and I've wanted to have you on as well. And now you're here, but it does seem as though the premise is not that our nature is happiness, but that what people walk around with every day is that the premise is how do I heal from all this pain and how do I maybe feel good 30% of the time? And you're saying something so revolutionary, which is like, no, like your actual being is happiness. So yeah, tell me about this book and why you wrote it. And what does that mean? Tell me more about what we, what that means and how we can allow that in if that's the case. Kathy, can I start with a personal story? Please. Uh, I'm going to go back. This is a, a second answer to your question about how I got started on this. I'd like to, to tell a story, which actually I tell in the introduction to the book. And in the context of, of you'll understand in the context of your question why I say this. I was 20 years old, madly in love. We had been together for, I think, two, if not three years in, in my uh, naivety I just presumed we'd get married, live happily ever after and have four children. That was my kind of <laughs> naive vision of, of our life together. And then in a brief phone call, our relationship came to an end. It took two minutes. My companion rang me up and said, I've met someone else. Goodbye. It wasn't quite that brief, but it was, oh, it was two minutes. It was oh, two minutes. So almost all, if not all of us, will be able to relate to this story. So what I re I was already interested in these matters by then, but something changed in my life then. I realized that my happiness was invested in or dependent upon my relationship with my intimate companion, and it came to an end in a two-minute phone call. And that, uh, th that night, I remember just lying awake in bed, asking myself, is there anything that I can rely on as a source of happiness. Any relationship could come to an end at any moment through separation or death or some kind of loss. Is there anything, my health, finances, my work, is there anything that I can rely on? And I realized everything changes and eventually disappears. If I invest my happiness in anyone or anything I'm setting myself up for disappointment. True. And the, 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 the truth of this just hit me. Mm -hmm. If my happiness is dependent on anyone or anything, 
I'm setting myself up for disappointment and failure. And I just, I could not escape because of this experience that I had just, I could not, I was just staring this fact in the face. So I, that, that really, as I said, I was already interested in these matters, but this really deepened this question in me. Is there anything that can be a, a source of lasting happiness? In what can one invest one's desire for lasting happiness? And after all these years, as I said, of traveling, not not traveling around the world physically, but traveling around the religious and spiritual traditions, I came to this recognition, my, my being, myself, that is the place of happiness. If we want lasting happiness, we should look in it, look for it in that which lasts, I mean, in that which is not temporary, in our being. Thank you for being so generous to share that story because everyone can relate to that. And I felt your pain when you stared up like, oh my gosh. And I want to ask you this. So when I first started to meditate in 2007, I went on a retreat at UCLA at the Mindfulness Center. It was like John Kabat-Zinn and a bunch of people. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. I read wherever you go, there you are. This is going to be a great weekend. And I sat down and he started to talk. And then at 45 minutes in, he stopped talking and everybody started meditating. And I had never done this before, which wasn't very smart. And then everybody was still meditating and everybody was still meditating. It was a nine hour day, day one. And about two hours into the silence, I thought I was going to have a panic attack. Like I was having a panic attack. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. I was, I felt sunburned all over my body. I have never felt that uncomfortable. And I said, why do people do this? What in the hell would make someone put themselves through this much hell? This is so awful. So I, then finally I said, that's it. I'm getting up. So I got up and quietly left the room and walked around UCLA and was trying to breathe And then I was like, okay, well, I want to try this again. So I went through a journey of different meditations and eventually found a little bit of peace and a practice. Let's just say that. And I have a practice that I feel like it's a a peaceful part of my morning. But when I talk to people about meditation, and believe me, I know enough just to know how much I really don't know. I'm very much a beginner, really, still. People can't stand it when I first mention it. They're like, "Eh, no, I've tried it. So when you say my being, right, it's like, why is it then like crossing an ocean to sit with ourselves? And since you have so much more experience with this than me, and you've written about this whole thing and meditations and how to do them and how to think about it in a way that can you can access that space, how can you access it? And what can we learn about what we're doing when we're meditation and during meditation? That's the reason we're feeling dissonance. And, and then how can we feel good being, just being? And why does it feel so bad? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Kathy, can we try and experiment? Oh gosh. Don't worry. It's it's not it's not confrontational. It, it's, okay, sure, it, it, sure. it's because I don't just want to describe a process. I, I, I'd like to explore it with you because it's so much more experiential. And I think it'll be so much more valuable for your listeners because that they can do the experiment with us. Okay. 
It's very simple. It's not confrontational. Okay, okay, good, good. Right. Okay. So would you agree, first of all, that yourself or your being, whatever exactly that is, it is present now? Yes. For instance, you can say, I am from your experience now. Mm -hmm. So in order to access your being, you don't need to reach into your past. You just need to reach into yourself. If yourself is present now, you don't need to go into the past to find it. You just go inside to your being. Yes? Mm, yeah. Okay. So without reference to the past, you know, you're a newborn infant. Imagine yourself as a newborn infant. You don't have a past. You can't go back to your past. Describe your being to us now. I know it's difficult with words, but, but close your eyes and just go to your being and do your best with rather these rather clumsy symbols, okay. words. Do I your best to try to describe him. There's a part of me that my being is, which is the witness of everything else. And when I connect to it, I can feel it is, was, and always will be. And it's um, it has a tremendous amount of um, just this well-being, and it's there. Yes. So your being, it's present. You said it's witnessing or it's it's aware. Your being is aware of your experience. It's it, it's present. And you said it, it's well-being. There's no agitation in it. Yeah, there's equanimity but, somehow. But there's no lack. In there, there may be, for instance, your, if I asked you to describe your thoughts... You might have said, oh, my thoughts, they're, they're, they're racing 19 to the dozen. I'm wondering what to ask next. Or, but I didn't ask about your thoughts. If I'd asked you about your feelings, you might have said, oh, I'm a bit upset about one of my children or I'm concerned. But, but no, I didn't ask you about your feet. So your, your thoughts can be agitated. Your feelings might be upset. But that wasn't the question. And you, quite rightly, you didn't refer to your thoughts or feelings. You didn't say I'm agitated or I'm upset you just went to your being and you said, my being is present. It is aware or witnessing was the word you used. It's witnessing, it's present. And you said it, it's well-being. In other words, there's no, there's no agitation or lack there. That's it. You just went back to your being. What you just did was the highest form of meditation. Why do I say it's the highest form of meditation? Because it's the only form of meditation that doesn't require us to direct our attention towards something objective, like the breath or a mantra or... I find that so hard. Flame. It's not impossible, but it's so hard because you're trying to focus on your breath, but really you want to be focusing on your feelings or you're trying to focus on the sensations in your body, but your thoughts are running 19 to the dozen. So there's a, it's a battle in you. So a lot of meditations, and I don't mean to imply any criticism, that there's a place for these kinds of meditations, but I would suggest they're, they're preparatory meditations. They're, what are they preparations for? The ultimate meditation, which is not the directing of attention towards anything. It's the relaxation of attention, the sinking of the mind into the heart, the sinking of attention in, into the act of simply being. In other words, the ultimate meditation is simply to be. I've never heard these words before. And 
I feel like you just gave me such a giant permission slip and so much freedom because I can't yes. focus on my breath. My mind goes and I'm like, I'm failing at this. I can't do this. It's yes. so hard. Exactly. In the ultimate analysis, Kathy, meditation is not something we do. It is what we are. Meditation is not about adding something to us. It's just about being the being that we essentially are. You don't have to struggle with your mind to do that. You don't have to focus on your breath to do that. You don't have to watch yourself eating. You don't have to. You just go back to the simple experience that we refer to when we say, I am. Everybody can say, I am. And when we say I am, we are referring to the most obvious, the most intimate, the most familiar experience there is, just the experience of being, the awareness of being. And to, to rest in that as that is the, is the highest meditation. This has been such a gorgeous conversation. Before we go any further, I just want to thank our sponsor. First impressions are everything. So if you're looking to make an impact with your online content, you need issue. The easiest way to make your creative ideas come to life and share everywhere you want to be seen. It's the all-in-one platform to create and distribute beautiful digital content from marketing materials to magazines, flip books, and brochures, and more. Instead of having to scroll through endless PDFs, you can easily feature your creation on every device. This is such a great tool for creators, marketers, designers, and really anyone who wants to make content that stands out. And you can start using Issue for free. They also offer premium features that give a more customized experience. I'm such a fan of their visual stories feature, which makes it really easy to turn any piece of content into the right format for Instagram, Facebook, or whatever we want to share. It. it really saves us time and the headache of having to reformat multiple times. My team also loves it because Issue works seamlessly with tools we already use like Canva, Dropbox, and InDesign. Get started with Issue today for free, or if you sign up for a premium account, you can get 50% off when you go to issue.com slash podcast and use promo code DREAMJOB. That's I-S-S-U-U.com slash podcast and use promo code DREAMJOB at checkout for your free account or 50% off your premium account. That's issue.com slash podcast with promo code DREAMJOB. Uh, we had Pete Holmes on the show who loves you. Love is not even enough of a word. It's just like a complete and total, right? Basically every answer he gave was a quote of yours. And it was just so adorable and wonderful to like hear him light up. And he said, like this morning, I was feeling agitated and anxious. So I decided to unfold my awareness into the I am of my being. And all of a sudden I was great. So if somebody is sitting down and let's say they want to begin to have this experience that you just so beautifully shared, what happens when their feelings bubble up and their mind tries to tell them a story about what are you doing? There's no consciousness. There's no, that. come on back. You really have this problem with your mother. You really still have this, right? Because like, that is what's going to happen. Your mind is going to do. So how do you keep coming back into the being, the I am? It's even simpler than coming back into it. Although I know we spoke of it in that way to begin with. We are already that. We don't even have to come back into it. I love that. Let me give you another analogy, Kathy. When we go to bed at night, we undress we take off everything that we can take off. We don't suddenly come back 
into our naked bodies. <laughs> we, we were our naked bodies all day long. It was just covered up with clothes. Well, meditation is like just revealing our naked being. We, we take off, so to speak, all the layers of, not the layers of clothing, but the layers of experience, the thoughts, the feelings, the sensations, the perceptions, the activities, and the relationships. And what's left when we take all of that? Naked being. Empty, peaceful being. We don't even need to come back to it. We just need to notice it. So when you're feeling, um, I'm upset, I'm nervous, I'm anxious, instead of emphasizing the upset, the nervousness, the anxiety, you just emphasize the I am. Don't touch the anxiety. Don't try to get rid of it. Don't discipline it. Don't try to don't try to change it. Don't try to replace it with something positive. Okay, I am upset. Right there in the middle of the upset, the I am is shining. Emphasize the I am. That's it. Your being will shine even when you're depressed. When we say, I am depressed, don't worry about depression. Just emphasize the I am and your being will just begin to shine. It's already shining in the experience, but we didn't notice it because we were so involved with the upset or the anxiety, or the depression. My whole brain waves right now are like reorienting to my reality. And I'm just so blown away. And I want to ask you this because we talked about the focusing on the breath meditation, which is some, some versions of meditation focus on your, your feet on the ground or the, or the sound of the refrigerator, whatever. Then there's other meditations, Rupert, which you are probably aware of where people want you to do like future tripping, like see yourself living your best life. You know, you're, you're doing this, you're having the best experience, right? And you're seeing a movie of yourself. That's some version that people say is a meditation. And there's this whole uh, aspect to our culture now in terms of manifesting. People want to manifest. They want more and they want to see it come into their life. And so they sometimes do meditations to manifest this reality. And there's tons of, so I was just curious what you think about that. And then where does the enoughness come in? Like, okay. how do you balance the, I want a fuller, richer experience of my life. And also I want to have the peace of that comes with the enoughness of this okay. moment. Let, let me comment on the two, two yeah. of the types of yeah. meditation. One, the types of meditation when we focus on the breath and two, the types of meditation when we imagine or futurize, we, we try to manifest. Yeah. So let's start with the manifesting. What, what, we're, what we do when we manifest like this, we, we have an image of the abundance that we want to feel. We project that abundance onto the world And then we manifest the world appearing to us in the form of that abundance, a new relationship, a new house, a new job, and and so on. These are compensations for the true abundance, the true fulfillment, which is the nature of our being. And it's the nature of our being now, not what it might be in five years' time. But because we have lost touch with the fullness, the abundance that is the nature of our being, we project it onto an intimate relationship, a bigger house, a better job in the future. It's just compensation. Why not go directly to the abundance that is available in your being now and that is not dependent 
on your relationship, your house, your job, your finances, your health, and so on. Because once you have, once you're in touch with that, you have this abundance, you have this peace, you have this fulfillment, irrespective of your circumstances in life. It's so big. I mean, it's so important and it's such a giant change in the language and in the habit yes. that is around us all the time. What we often notice, Kathy, as a byproduct of this understanding, that the byproduct of this recognition of the inherently peaceful, fulfilled nature of ourself is that we no longer project insufficiency or scarcity or unlovability onto the world. And in a sort of magical way, it's not really magical, but, but just it's just natural. But in, in, a, in a way that seems to be magical, the world responds. Because before, the world was just reflecting back to us our own feeling of scarcity, unlovability, failure, disappointment. And the world, because of this deep connection between our inner life and the outside world, the world was just mirroring this back to us. So now, when having recognized them, the inherently peaceful, fulfilled nature of ourselves, we notice without making any effort, let alone attempting to manifest anything, our relationships in the world improve, our life in the world improves, the world becomes a friendly place, not a hostile place. So there is because there is this deep correspondence between our inner life and the outer world. But it happens as a byproduct of this understanding. It's not something we've aimed for. I want to ask you this. I mean, this is just like, so, so much nutrition, like, I feel like this is like the best meal. And I don't need another one. So Brene Brown has research around joy. And she says that when people feel joy, about 10 seconds into noticing that they're feeling joy, they feel fear. What if something takes this away? And she did this research to find out, because when people feel joy, the nervous system relaxes, the ego's fight or flight response relaxes, and then they feel vulnerable. So... I've had people on the show many times. Gay Hendricks was here talking about the big leap. And he said, the biggest upper limit is this needing to create some static or drama because the ego that we have is scared of actually sustaining this feeling of joy because now it can no longer be hypervigilant about checking its environment. So when you say what you're saying, which is gorgeous, and I, my whole being knows that it's true as you say it, I then also am aware that I have practiced this dance of feeling into joy and real gladness. And then my nervous system starts to feel scared. So when people are listening right now, that's probably one of the payoffs in going into drama and creating drama is because you're, it's scary to unwind yes. that fight or flight response. And so what do you, what have you learned about it? Because clearly you are sustaining this experience of being in your being. And that yes. takes a lot of courage. Okay. Okay, let me give you an analogy, Kathy, um, which, which illustrates the situation that you've described very well. This joy that we long for, but we also fear it. Right. This irony of the one thing we want above all else is the one thing we fear above all else. Why is this? Consider the moth and the flame. 
the moth sees a, a candle at a distance in the open window, and the candlelight is its the only thing the moth wants. It's attracted to the light. So it flies towards the candle. As long as it's flying towards the candle, the candle is what it wants above all else. It goes in a straight line for the candle until it gets about three inches away. And then suddenly it realizes, in order to have the candle, I must die. Because the moment it touches what it wants, it dies. Well, the moth is the ego and the candle is happiness, joy. The candle of joy is the one thing the ego wants above all else. But the moment the ego touches that joy, it dies. Why? Because joy is the loss of the sense of separation. It is the loss of the sense of being a, a needy, vulnerable, insufficient fragment. So the ego cannot have the joy it seeks. It must die into the joy it seeks. So the ego comes close to the joy. It's about to lose itself in it. And then it thinks, oh, no, I'll die. I'll no longer be myself. And it pulls back again. And that's the dance that, that the ego rehearses over and over and over again. The moth withdraws from the flame, but then it thinks, oh no, all I want is the flame. It goes back to the flame. It gets two inches away and says, oh no, I'm going to die. And it withdraws again. I mean, can it be that on August 19th, I just learned the whole meaning of life? I mean, that is like, that's it. That is so clear and so profound. So what are we going to do <laughs> if we have this practice of this moth and this flame and this ego? And it's so wired, right? Because it comes from a pattern in our mind that tells us this is how you're going to be safe. It's just yes, going to yes. the we could define the ego, Kathy, as a qualification or a limitation of our being. I am plus intelligent, stupid, young, old, healthy, sick, married, single. It's always I am plus something. And the plus something is it's a feeling, a relationship. I am sad. I am lonely. I am tired. I'm upset. I'm married. I'm single. I'm a mother. I'm a father. It's always I am plus some qualification. So in other words, the, the ego is our being. That's the I am plus some kind of a limit. Mm. Limit is a feeling, a thought, a belief, a relationship. So all that's necessary is to know what we essentially are. What we essentially are is that part of us that always remains. When we get undressed at night, our clothes are not essential to us. They come and they go. We put them on, we take them off. But our body is what we essentially are physically. We're not always cold. We're not always tired. We're not always lonely. We're not always married. We're not always wealthy. We're not always healthy. We're not... But we always are. I always am. All that's necessary is to let go of everything, all the qualities that are derived from our thoughts, our feelings, our activities, our relationships. 
It doesn't mean to say, say we cease having thoughts, activities, relationships, but we no longer let them define us. What is it that defines us? Just our being, just pure being. I feel so blessed that I'm sitting here with you. I don't even know how to express it, but I'm doing my best to say that to you. I'm just, my witness right now is just witnessing how blessed I feel to be hearing this transmission. I want to ask you something because you have a podcast and I want everyone to know you have a podcast because I want them to know where to find it. Cause after this, if they didn't know about it, they're going to want to listen to it. So the Rupert's Fire podcast, but my question about you having a podcast and just in general, like I have a podcast. Sometimes I ask myself this need to keep putting things in the world. Is that from my ego that can no, need, like, no, because, Kathy. okay. Cause people who listen to the show, right. They want to build things. They want to paint, they want to make okay. things. And it's like, okay. if everything's about just being, shouldn't I just sit on a bench and admit? Yes. No, no. Why am okay. I doing this constantly writing more books? What, what is that? Is that ego? Or is that good? <laughs> it could be ego, but it is by no means definitely egoic that there can be two sources of our actions one of the sources is indeed egoic i feel a sense of lack i feel incomplete i need to acquire something do something have a relationship in order to fulfill me that that, that would be starting from a sense of lack and engaging in an activity, a business, a relationship, whatever, in order to fulfill that sense of lack, to complete me, to fulfill me, that that would be an egoic desire. But there are other desires, Kathy, that are not initiated by the sense of lack. They come from the fullness, which is the nature of our being. But that fullness just overflows out of us. It is natural that that fullness wants to communicate itself and share itself and express itself and celebrate itself. That's called creativity. And true creativity never comes from the ego. So it's quite possible that, for instance, let's say the desire to have a podcast. Somebody could desire to have a podcast because they feel unloved, unworthy, unlovable, (laughs) a failure. And they think that by having a podcast, they'll gain other people's respect. And therefore, their sense of themselves uh, will will be uh, restored. They'll feel valuable and lovable. It's possible. However, I've got no doubt at all, Kathy, that, that, that your podcast is not initiated by any such sense of lack, but that it comes from the, the, the fullness of your heart. And you simply can't, it's not enough just to contain that fullness in your heart. You want to share that fullness with as many people as possible. So you create a fabulous podcast and you get however many million views it is that that's beautiful it means you're touching the hearts of millions of people bringing this understanding in one way or another to society that's not egoic on the contrary that's a desire that arises on behalf of the peace and the joy and the love that are the nature of our being thank you so so much for that that is so giant for me i feel like in studying the work of you and tiknot han and so many incredible beings, I sometimes wrestle with what's wrong with me. I keep creating another retreat. I keep doing this. I keep doing this. And, and I do feel that I just 
I have an overflow of this love that I want to share. Yes. And I didn't quite ever know what you just shared. And it's so beautiful. So for you, you have a retreat coming up, which I mean, it's amazing. Is there still space for people to sign up for your retreat in September? I, I think there's, there's a live stream space only now. There's no, there's no physical spaces, I, I think. Yeah. Okay. And then as far as your podcast, I'm interested for you, what it's like for you, because you already have this simple, profound wisdom. So when you're sitting with your guests, what is it like for you? What What is it that you're enjoying about having a podcast? That's a beautiful question. Before COVID, I was doing a little bit online. I had a YouTube channel. I don't think I had a podcast channel. I was doing a few webinars, but my, my meetings were almost all in-person retreats with a relatively small number of people. And most of the people that were attending my retreats were people, if not from the choir, from the congregation. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 I'm talking about the non-dual, the church of non-duality, people who, who were certainly interested in spiritual matters, but usually even more specific, interested in, in the non-dual understanding. So people from a relatively small pool were attending my meetings. Then COVID came along. I started doing more and more meetings online, including podcasts. And I started getting invitations from people way outside, not the choir, not even the congregation, but people that would never dream of entering the church. Beautiful. I started getting, I've had conversations with um, the Metropolitan Police, uh, the Nationwide Building Society, Alcoholics Anonymous, various elite athletes, people that um, would never normally come to one of my meetings. And because of this, I find myself being asked questions that are not the normal questions that a so-called non-dual teacher gets asked at a, an in-person retreat. So these podcasts and conversations have stretched me. They've demanded that I come outside my, my comfort zone, the little non-dual bubble that I used to operate in, and speak to police officers who spend their day looking at horrendous videos it's it's their job to trawl through videos whose content is just unimaginable this is what they do all day every day what what do they do when they go home so that's a question i would never have been asked previously but now so i in order to respond to that question i've had to expand and come out of my comfort zone, find ways of, of connecting with people, connecting this understanding with people that I, I didn't have or know before. And that I've learned so much from people doing this. And I'm sometimes people think that to be a, a so-called non-dual teacher or a spiritual teacher, I don't like the title at all, but to be in that position it is a is a position which in some ways aggrandizes you. The opposite is true. I've been so humbled these last few years, particularly doing these meetings with people online where I've been having conversations with people, as I said, outside the normal small bubble of non-duality. I've been deeply touched and and humbled by the conversations I've had with people. And you communicate 
with not just your words, but with your vibration, you, you communicate so well. We've done 650 episodes and I feel like this episode, there's just a gentleness and a sweetness and a truth that you tell that anyone can hear. And so I'm so glad that you are doing it. I just want to ask you one last question because it just struck me. I didn't, and you didn't, I don't think, use the word God in this conversation, right? And now God is such like a burdened word, right? It means 50,000 things to 50,000 people, different things. But I'm just curious, what is your association or feeling about that, whatever that is, the source, the creation, the creator, the universe, the infinite oneness, the field. I don't know. I'm just curious. That was my last question, just because I realized you hadn't used that word. You're right, Kathy. We didn't use the word God and it it wasn't a conscious thing, but at the same time, I'm sure it wasn't a mistake. I, I don't know your audience. I'm sure for some people, they love the word God. The word God takes them directly to the one reality that underlies everything. But for other people, due to their upbringing oh, that can be a beast. Oh, God is just a, it just a closes the door immediately so I would never I'm very aware of the uh, um, how too. provocative that that, that word can be and it's a barrier to people so I would never use it however I actually like the word God to me it um, immediately the, the, the thought of God or the word God immediately takes me from the appearance of multiplicity and diversity, the 10,000 things, to the one reality that lies behind the appearance and expresses itself as the appearance. Mm -hmm. So it immediately connects my heart. It takes me not only back home to my deepest being internally, but it takes me to the ultimate reality of the world and to my connection with it. So for some of us, the word God is just a symbol for that one reality. And for others, it is an obstruction. So it has to be used very, very, very carefully. So beautiful. That's that's exactly how I see it, too. That's why I wear this infinity around my neck. Beautiful. Um, The word in Hebrew for God is just is, was, will be. So it's just the oneness of all reality. And yeah. I was a comparative religion major in college, and I found that at the heart of so all the rivers led to that one ocean, that we were all part of this one ocean. So I just wanted to check in with you about that. I can't help but love you and everything you are and tell everybody as we're signing off where they can find you and buy the books and listen to the podcast. Kathy, thank you. I'm very touched by you and our conversation. The first place to go is my YouTube channel. I've got a, a ridiculous number of clips on, on YouTube. So that would be the first place. Uh, then my website, rupertspira.com. And uh, very, very shortly, I will have a, a meditation app, a free meditation app, which is going to consist of daily 10-minute meditations. So I'll, I'll let you know when that comes out you can you you can just share it with anyone you like but those will be the two main places my youtube channel my website and the book you are the happiness you seek probably amazon or my website those are the two places to to get it what a giant gift it is to sit with you thank you thank Thank you you so much it's been a pleasure and never forget never i will never forget was i right 
he's just incredible. I'm just blown away. I'd love to hear what you think about this episode. DM me on Instagram and let me know if this was as big for you as it was for me. So here are the takeaways. Number one, the nature of your being is happiness and peace. Number two, home is not a mysterious place in ourselves that's difficult to access. It's just our being that lies just behind the content of our experience. Number three, the I am is the place of peace within us, the place where happiness resides. Number four, love is the recognition of our shared being. Number five, meditation isn't something we do. It's something we are. It's not about adding something to us. The ultimate meditation is simply to be. Number six, what we essentially are is that part of us that always remains. We don't need to come back to our being. We just need to notice it. Number seven, true creativity never comes from the ego. And number eight, all that's necessary is to let go of all the qualities that are derived from our thoughts, our feelings, our relationships, because what defines us is just our pure being. Thank you so much for being here and soaking in these conversations. We have such exciting episodes coming up. Make sure that you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or you're following us on Spotify. And if you're enjoying the show, please let us know. The best way for you to support this show is to leave a review, leave a rating and share the show. Text somebody right now the link, share the episode with somebody over email or a few friends or post about it on your Instagram. And you can tag me at kathy.heller and you can tag Rupert. He is on social at Rupert Spira and Spira is S-P-I-R-A. I'm sure he will love to see that you really got all that he was trying to convey. And finally, if you want to sign up for my podcast program, it is an eight week, beautiful journey. And if you buy the platinum package, it will get you a ticket to come be with me for two days in Los Angeles at Royce Hall. So gorgeous at UCLA. We'll be with Amy Purdy, Andy Grammer, Rachel Platten, Candace Nelson, Mark Groves, Terry Cole. It's just going to be such abundance. It's going to be unbelievable. You can get $500 off if you go to kathyheller.com slash join. That is a flash sale that ends tomorrow night. I love you so much. I'll leave you with a song and I hope that you have a beautiful weekend. Searching for some kind